All right, welcome everybody. Well, let me tell you something. I want to just, I guess I need to begin by saying thank God for all of you online and all of you in-house. It's just great. It's just great to have you here. And we're wrapping things up today. If you've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, and while you're turning there, let me read you something just to kind of get this thing going. One person wrote, we were whitewater rafting with some friends. It was October early in the morning. The sun wasn't up yet. We were in wetsuits preparing to face serious class four and five rapids down the river. Before leaving camp, all 75 to 80 in the group were called together for an important instruction. Our leader looked very serious and said, listen up. What you are about to experience is extreme. People have died. If you listen and apply what I tell you, it could save your life or the life of someone you're with. Attention getting, huh? We are looking this morning at what the leader of the church at Laodicea said to them. Now, lest there be any doubt, there is but one leader of the Lord's church, <laughs> and it is the Lord. It is not a man. It is Christ Jesus. He's the leader. And so he is speaking a specific word to this church at Laodicea, and this church is in trouble. Jesus is telling them some things to save their life and possibly those that they are with. You can almost sense as we go through this that Jesus has a sense of urgency because he's determined to prepare this church for the future. He wants to make sure that all seven of these churches that he has written to are good to go into the next life. Think about it. The church in Ephesus, let's just go through our map here. The church in Ephesus would be good to go in eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That the church in Smyrna would be good to go in receiving the crown of life and not be hurt in the second death. That the church in Pergamum would be good to go in finding and eating the hidden manna and in receiving their white stones with their own names written on them. That the church in Thyatira would be good to go in joining Jesus to rule with authority over the nations in the coming kingdom. That the church in Sardis would be good to go in wearing their spotless white garments and in having their names forever written in the book of life. And that the church in Philadelphia that we looked at last week would be good to go in becoming pillars in God's kingdom while receiving God's name and God's city and receiving Jesus knowing Jesus' real name. Oh, my. It's no different with the church in Laodicea. Jesus wants them to be good to go. Look at verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus wants them to be good to go in sitting on the great white throne in heaven. You're seeing the purpose behind these letters. Jesus doesn't want our reunion in heaven to be left to chance. And for the churches, for the church in Laodicea, Jesus has got some grave concerns. The city of Laodicea is known for three main things. 
their wealth, their financial structure and industry, their clinical school, a sort of medical school with a special eye ointment that they discovered, and their textile production of this special wool, this black wool. So they were rich, (laughs) they were dressed to the nines in the finest of clothes, and they enjoyed medical advances, especially in this eye salve. The city was self-sufficient, the city was self-reliant, and the city was filled with pride. So Jesus begins his letter. Here we go. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. All right, let's think about this. Amen. So be it. Let it be. I'm in agreement. That, that, that's what that word means. Jesus not only said amen, he said, I am the amen. I'm the let it be. When I say, it happens. What I say goes. He's the truth. God is not some abstract idea dreamed up by needy people. God is the real and visible creator. He's visible because Jesus is that tangible representation of him. God is real. And Jesus is not an ordinary run-of-the-mill witness. He's a faithful and true witness. In other words, what Jesus says and sees is 100% accurate and dependable 100% of the time. Jesus can be counted on. A true and faithful witness whose testimony is always reliable. Now, if calling himself the amen and the faithful and true witness wasn't enough, Jesus ends this little introduction of his credentials by saying, oh, by the way, I'm the creator of, I'm the ruler of God's creation. Okay. If anyone ever thought that Jesus was just a good man, or a wonderful teacher, or a, a, a good prophet. You've missed it. If that's your view of Christ, he is the originator. He is the source. He is the creator. Look at what one of the inspired writers wrote. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus wants the Laodicean church to know exactly who it is that's speaking to them. Okay, this is the amen. This is the faithful and true witness. And if you didn't get it yet, I'm the ruler of everything. That's who's talking. And now look what he says. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, Can we fully experience the gravity of what Jesus is saying here? This poor, blind, naked church actually made him sick. (laughs) That's just not what you want the creator of the universe to say to you. 
And the worst part of it, of the whole thing, is they, they hadn't a clue. They didn't even know it. They would just humdrum go through their day. Laodicea's water was terrible. They had a small water supply that was full of minerals that gave it a putrid taste. So they had this aqueduct system that ran from a hot spring in, uh, what is it called? Heropolis, that was six miles away. And then they had another source that came from the mountains below Colossae, that another aqueduct system that flowed that cold water to them. But after that water traveled in those two aqueduct systems, six miles one and 11 miles the other, why, by the time it got there, it, it was warm and tepid, and it had time to cultivate bacteria growth. And anybody who drank it had intestinal issues, and they were sick. Lukewarm is the word picture that Jesus used to describe their spiritual condition. Jesus said, you're so self-reliant, self-centered, and self-indulgent physically that you can't see and won't hear that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked spiritually. Jesus found their self-absorption nauseating. <laughs> Jesus wasn't criticizing their wealth or fine clothes or medicines. He was just sickened by their false sense of self-sufficiency. They were blind to their own spiritual poverty. Okay, boom, there it is. There's, there's the negative. There's the problem. So now Jesus follows that up as he always does with, okay, what's the remedy? So we start in verse 18. I counsel you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes Interesting contrast that the black textile wool was what, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve, interesting, huh? And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. In effect, Jesus is saying, do you want to be rich? Then be rich in me. The inspired writer says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus is in effect saying, you want fine clothes? Be clothed in me. The ancient prophet Isaiah would write, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Jesus says, you want to see clearly? then you need to apply my salve, as the writer would say again in writing the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This letter had to be a tough read. I, I can't imagine the Laodicean church hearing these words. Jesus, in effect, told them honestly that the way they were living made him want to vomit. Yeesh. But then, as our Lord always does, look what he starts out with in verse 19. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and turn and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. A lady in England was out riding her horse when she saw a shepherd that had some dogs that was driving a herd of sheep. And as the herd stopped to drink out of the potholes and the curbs along the streets, he would quickly tell his dogs to keep those sheep moving. And she thought as she was watching this shepherd not allow those sheep to stop and drink, she thought the shepherd cruel. Why not give these sheep a moment? So she just kept observing. In a little bit, the shepherd with his dogs led that herd of sheep to a beautiful pasture and opened this big iron gate. And the sheep were soon in knee-high fresh grass with a mountain stream running through. And she then thought, why, this shepherd isn't cruel. He didn't want them to eat and drink by the roadside where danger was lurking. He only was trying to get them to a better place. Jesus only rebukes and disciplines us to get us to a better place. It's maturity. It's growth in him. It's not you choosing the way that you want to live. No, it's it's bowing that down and saying, okay, I choose your way. I'm following you. In 1854, William Hallman Hunt painted his famous portrait of Romans 3.20, calling it the light of the world. And notice the rundown cottage, thistles growing around the door, overgrown grass on the path leading up to the door. Vines and weeds fill the lower edge, the top, the right-hand side. And there stands Jesus holding a lantern, casting light into the darkness. And with his other hand, he's knocking, waiting to bring in the light. No forceful entry, (laughs) just the humble creator and universal ruler waiting to be invited in. Notice that also there's no handle on the outside of the door because the door can only be opened from the inside. I find it ironic, I even find it baffling that he tells us to seek him first and to knock and it will be opened and to ask and it will be given. But we end up going our own way and we stop seeking and we stop knocking and we stop asking. And what happens when we do that? The creator, he comes around seeking us. (laughs) And he he comes around asking that we might invite him in. He he comes around knocking just in hopes that the doors of our heart would be open. You guys, humanity can draw up a lot of things. They can dream up a lot of things. But no one could have ever thought that a creator 
would be like that. Arguably, the most beloved actor of the generation a century ago was Jimmy Stewart. Love him. It, it's a Wonderful Life. It's got to be the best movie ever made. But this is wonderful, too. His character in that movie, Shenandoah, is Mr. Anderson. And Mr. Anderson's a hard, self-reliant man, tells his family to do what they need to do, and they have a gorgeous plantation. All of his six sons and a daughter, and one of them, daughter's married. And no, one of the sons has a wife, and the daughter ends up getting married in the movie. It's the classic Civil War drama of a family that's caught up in a time when our country was really struggling. And Mr. Anderson didn't want his sons to fight in the Civil War. He kept saying again and again, it's not my fight. But he could not stop the fight from coming to them. And by the last scene, Mr. Anderson comes to understand his helpless state to control anything. Protecting his children was his sole mission in life. In fact, it's what he promised his wife, Martha, who had been dead 16 years. She said, raise them as Christians. Raise them as Christians. Well, he, Christian Smithman, he, he didn't care about that. He just wanted to have a farm and take care of things and raise a family. But he begrudgingly agreed to raise them in faith, as is evidenced by this prayer that's at the beginning of the film when they're sitting around the table. He prays, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all by ourselves. We worked dog-boned hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> here you have that self-made man. What I have, I have because I got it. Well, now at the end of the film, he gathers around that same table. This time, after the ravages of war has made its mark. And the family is only half of what it used to be. So he's sitting there with those empty chairs. And he starts the prayer. <laughs> There's no way. There's no way he can pray that prayer. And he just excuses himself from the table and he leaves the house and he goes to his wife's grave. And he stands at his grave, at her grave, and he says, I don't even know what to say to you anymore, Martha. There's not much I can tell you about this war. It's like all wars, I guess. The undertakers are winning and the politicians who talk about the glory of it and the old men who talk about the need of it and the soldiers. The soldiers, they just want to go home. And at the grave, Mr. Anderson realizes the futility of human effort. He tried to save his son, who was mistook for a member of the Confederate Army and was taken up to the Union. He and his boys went and looked and searched for him, lost one of his boys' life in their search. The effort was futile, and Anderson makes his way back to the house, and he says, I'm sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself. He's still talking to Martha. And he says, for all of the striving and all of his work and all the politicians and the old man, he stands at the graveside and Anderson says out loud to his dead wife in the ground right in front of him, 
I wish, I wish I could just know what you're thinking about it all, Martha. And maybe it wouldn't seem so bad to me if I knew just what you thought about it. And then there's a pause, and then you hear the church bells announcing that church services are soon to begin. And he thinks and smiles and says, you never give up, do you, Martha? <laughs> so he goes and rounds the kids up, half the family that it used to be, and they all go to church services together. And as they get down there, a mighty fortress is being sung. Martin Luther's hymn. And as they're singing this song, Anderson sits as the embodiment of Luther's words. Did we, in our own strength, confide? Our striving would be losing. And Anderson confided in himself, and he can see that he's lost. He's lost half of his family. His wife's been buried a decade and a half. Striving would be losing. But then the lyric continues. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing does ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And in that moment, the song concludes... And his lost son that he affectionately called boy comes in under a crutch. And tears well up in Anderson's eyes. And at his weakest and most vulnerable, he's finally not depending on his own strength. This man had depended only on self. All the film finally gets it. And in that moment, he experiences restoration. His wholeness is a gift from Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of rest. And with his arm around his son, he sings the doxology. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Not because he's made my life right, but because he's there in spite of it all. You guys, do you hear the message Jesus is giving this church? He's saying the goal of this life must never be found in self-sufficiency. That's not the goal. The goal in this life is our utter dependency on Jesus. That's where we find purpose and meaning and fulfillment. Your, your grandparents, me, because I'm old, we grew up singing this. We don't sing it much anymore. The stanza says, not the labors of my hand can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Oh, Father, whatever it takes to make us utterly dependent on you. We say, come. We want to only depend on who you are and what you've done. Let it be said that this church does not have the spirit of the Laodicean church. They are not a self-reliant people. 
who think they have it all and don't need anything. We are a needy people that need you every moment of the day. And for that, we give you praise because you, you are all sufficient. Hear our prayer, Father, as we sing this final song of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, let's stand. Let's stand.